0: Speaker,
1: our lead speaker in the FD will be Dr. Bernard Steinberg. Dr. Steinberg is Director of Emeritus at Harvard Hill. He serves as president of the Harvard Chaplains, lecturer at the Kennedy School of Government. He has conducted workshops on moral leadership for the Center for Curatorial Leadership in New York, the Yorm Fellowship, distinguished museum curators from the United States and around the world. He teaches at the Center for Jewish Studies as a graduate theological union in Berkeley, California. Dr. Steinberg was a founding fellow of the Shoven Barman Institute, among the founders of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. He taught Jewish thought at Hebrew University, served as the faculty of the Wexford Foundation. He uh, has a doctorate in Jewish philosophy from Hebrew University in Jerusalem, an MA in modern Jewish thought from Breida University, and a BA in literature from Wesleyan. He's a recipient of many awards, including Benjamin J. Sheba Award for Distinguished Leadership in Jewish Education, conferred by the Boston Hebrew College and the College Award for Excellence in Jewish Education. Good friend of mine. He's a great guy, actually, and a great shooter. And we're really happy that we was able to bring him in from uh, the West Coast. I think a very appropriate speaker at this occasion in memory of Jack. So, without further ado, regards are going to start is a
0: very special occasion for me for several reasons. One is, as David said, uh, we're very close friends, and one of the reasons that David is a friend of mine is because he's someone I think really um, goes against the grain in being very critical and affirmative about what is needed, (laughs) what needs to be criticized, and what is is needed for Jewish life in this country. There's an intellectual honesty that, I particularly cherish and I think we, as a people, have a particular need for it now. I'm gonna talk about my my topic in a minute. I, of course, want to thank Beverly, where's Beverly, and, and, and Avi for inviting me to speak, but also for challenging me. We had several discussions, Avi and I, us alone, and then Beverly, Avi, and I, about what this topic should be, how to approach it, not the big topic of the intersection between American and Jewish Jewish values life, but really what kind of what kind of talk it is. And Beverly basically just said to me, uh, it's not worth it to us unless you're challenging, unless you're controversial and challenge. I don't think I'm my intention is not to be controversial, but it is to challenge and first and foremost myself. Because I have been struggling with the, the the big issues here, what does it mean to be an American, what does it mean to be a Jew my entire life, I'll comment on that uh, in a minute, but I think that um, right now at this moment in time there's a real shift in many of the ideas and the assumptions that I've had my whole life basically about that intersection, what does it mean to be an American, what does it mean to be a Jew, a lot of those tensions actually are now being scrambled into new tensions and new challenges and at the end of the day I think that right now as an intuition, it's nothing I have prove I think we're in a uh, an actual paradigm shift in you fill it in American life, Jewish life <coughs> the global world and that those three you know kind of Uh, assumptions of similar areas of civilization I think are being in a sense shaken to their core and I think it's the result not of what's happened in the last year or two but it really is the climax of of all sorts of forces that have happened um, in Western life and in the world for the last, go back 10 years, 20 years it actually goes back uh, in time further than that. the, the, the frame of my talk is, I, I, I actually struggled with the title. Uh, I have the word crisis in it, but then it occurred to me over the years, a lot of my talks have had crisis in it, it's because shoes are always in crisis, you know, and so it's this crisis or that crisis. The only real crisis we, we actually have that's different from those crises is when we're not in crisis, then we really have a crisis. So now I think we actually are in something that is of a different order than, I think it is a crisis, but it's a different order. As I've said, I think it's it's really a a shaking of the foundations and a kind of paradigm shift where it's not really clear how we can wrap our minds around it and how to go forward. And so for that reason, in struggling with with the title, I came up with the word ethos, Jewish and American Ethos during turbulent times. Turbulence, to me, uh, just has a connotation that's a little more shaking and loud. Turbulence is not just any old kind of uh, crisis. It's the kind of crisis that where there's kind of a lot of incoherence, chaos. Uh, physically, you feel shaken up, and there's a lot of noise. Um, that's why I picked that word, ethos. Jewish and American ethos because ethos to me is a broader category than this or that value, or this or that system. An ethos, uh, basically I'm not using it any, in any technical or academic way, I'm just saying an ethos is basically uh, the beliefs and practices that shape character and shape society. And it's shaping character and shaping society basically what we're talking about is something on the foundational level, something below the surface, something that's got a kind of a level of, of, of depth, which is the ground of value and the ground of a life. So that's why I'm using, I'm using that term. Maimonides um, uses certain kind of language when he's trying to get at that depth. Yisod, foundations, shoresh, Root or roots, ikar, that which is essential in a deep way. So I, I want to approach this intersection between American and and Jewish life on that level, that that discourse of uh, of depth and multi-dimensionality. And I'm, I'm going to be painting wide, comprehensive. I, I want to have <coughs> presents a, a sort of a sense of the forest, but I also want to Move into some of the trees, some of the, the texture, some of the details. So I hope to go wide and deep, which is basically a contradiction, especially if you have an hour. Uh, but that's that's the uh, the way that uh, I'm kind of delineating it. So for that purpose, um, I want to work off of text, even though this isn't a text or So I'm going to be moving fast, and the texts <laughs> are the texts that basically they're basic texts. Their bread of the Jewish text, the classical text, are bread and butter texts. They're foundational texts, and I'm returning to them not only because, and for many of you here, there will be familiar texts to you, but the juxtaposition on them, and particularly the context of today's reality, illuminates those texts in a in a new way, and those texts also illuminate what's going on. I think in ways that are that are uh, very, very important. But we're not gonna, I'm gonna be skipping along and referring to them, pulling out a phrase or two, but we're not gonna be analyzing text um, as we did in the workshop. And we still have opportunities after this to pick up on themes that are related to my talk and go in, in depth with with uh, with individual text. So, could someone please pass on the text? Uh, yeah so you'll be getting a sheet of text the way to use these texts you have more than one way one is to ignore them and just listen because i'm going to read whatever i have to say or paraphrase so you can ignore it if the pieces of paper end up being a interception to you just put them down and one of the reasons i also put it together is so that when i raise hopefully questions that are going to be interesting i'm not going to provide any answers that i'm not going to tie anything together but i will raise a lot of questions at least questions to me which hopefully also can resonate with you you'll have an opportunity for follow to just you know have some text that can help you um, struggle uh, with uh with those questions okay so um while those uh, sheets are being passed out um there are a couple of other things that I'll say by way of framing. Um, within this discussion of an ethos, which is that which is shapes character, sort of the moral core, the foundation uh, of our value system, I'm also focusing within that on dignity and human work, because all ethical systems, all cultures have at their heart a conception of what it means to be human. An idea, not just of what it means to be human, but how do we actually view, evaluate ourselves as individuals as a basis for how we evaluate others. So this isn't about morals as rules. This isn't, uh, it's about what does it mean to focus on the human being and the value of a human being as the ultimate unit of what it means to basically live within a culture or live between cultures and basically be a Jew uh, and an an American. The term dignity, um, I'm using a definition by Donna Hicks, who's who's at Harvard, who I thought wrote a very, for our purposes, useful definition of dignity. I'm quoting her, dignity is an internal, State of peace that comes with the recognition and acceptance of the value and vulnerability of all living things. I'll say that again. Dignity is an internal state of peace that comes with the recognition and acceptance of the value and vulnerability of all human beings. So basically, when we're talking about human dignity and a conception of what it means to be human, what does it mean? to have dignity as a human being, that's a term that's used now in political discourse, in moral discourse, what Donna is bringing to the table and kind of underlining in an important way that it's not just a social category of good manners, respect in an external sense. It actually has to do with an internal state, an internal state of well-being and that internal state of well-being has to do with an awareness of the value and the vulnerability of human beings. So there are a few more nuances in that than kind of one-dimensional act with dignity. Oh, my tie, my tie is, you know, act with dignity. My mother used to always make sure my tie is, you know, straight. It wasn't dignified, you know. We're not talking about that. Uh, And one other framework. The Jewish frame. I want to give you a wide, wide Jewish frame, and then a wide, wide American frame, and then we're gonna jump in and, and start moving uh, very quickly you know, on this journey, on this exploration. I'm I'm reading as a framework for this whole discussion some words from a book called Jews and Words. By Amos Oz and Fanya Oz Salzburg. Amos Oz, you know, is the Israeli author. Fanya is his daughter. They're so-called secular Jews. Uh, I think they really don't fit into any category. And one of the, for those of you who like takeaways and one things boiled down, um, if there's anything that uh, I'm gonna get to or sort of, you know, as we go, it's gonna be that the old labels don't work conservative, reform, in politics, in Jewish life, (laughs) right wing, left wing, pro-Israel, anti-Israel, you name the category, secular, religious, those categories don't work anymore. They're over. And what I mean by that is not that they don't have uses in certain contexts, that I'm not arguing for the dismantling of institutions that have identified with those ideologies. In functional ways, fine, good, but in terms of understanding actually who we are to plug ourselves and others into those categories is not helpful and in certain cases actually destructive. So it's time to get rid of those labels. So when I use the word Jewish here, I basically want to give a kind of approach that comes from this book, Jews and Words. Jewish history and peoplehood form a unique continuum, which is neither ethnic nor political. Neither ethnic nor political. Oh, that's strange. Um, I'll come back to that. To be sure, our history includes ethnic and political lineages, but they are not its prime arteries. Instead, the national and cultural genealogy of the Jews has always depended on the intergenerational transmission of verbal content. Look around this fake Drush. That's what they're talking about. Um, it is about faith, of course, but even more effectively, it is about text. Significantly, the texts have long been available in writing. Text, questions, dispute. We don't know about God, but Jewish continuity was always paved with words. In Jewish tradition, every reader is a proofreader, every student a critic, and every writer, including capital A, the author of the universe, begs a great many questions. So that's the frame, the widest frame. you're talking about Jewish ethos, we have an ethos of conversation, and a conversation, which is a text text, based conversation it's a conversation that's intergenerational and it's a question it's a it's a it's a conversation that provokes questions and enables in fact insists that we struggle with those questions in meaningful ways at a certain level of depth so that's the broadest and we're going to be modeling that and that's that's the broadest uh, uh, example of ethos well what about the American ethos and here of course there's a huge a huge gap between what I just read and the American ethos. There's no particular necessary condition in the American ethos of tech study of intergenerational conversation per se, although that can happen and does happen. On the other hand, America, as an idea, is more than the political reality and the political system, even the political documents of this country. And so for that, I want to give you some words from a book by Jacob Needleman called The American Soul. And his main point is that the gap between what happens on the ground, we had this in the the earlier uh, lecture. What does it mean to have an American narrative that basically is full of ugliness and full of so We can't buy into the old American narrative or the old Jewish narrative from the point of view of innocence. It's very complicated. How do you then understand the meaning of, of your collective identity when you've got narratives and realities behind those narratives, facts, that actually contradict the narratives and actually potentially undermine? And As Dr. Schwartz said, well, we gotta look a little bit higher at creed. Well, I don't know about creed, but I do know that to talk about the mission and the idea of a culture, what it stands for, the why, not simply the what is the reality of it, certainly makes a lot of sense. And that's basically um, Jacob Needleman's point. So I just want to give you some of his words that I can play off of. As for the idea of democracy, the founding fathers, Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, and others, never conceived of it solely as an external form of government the meaning of democracy was always rooted in a vision of human nature as both fallen and perfectible inwardly fallen and inwardly perfectible to a significant extent democracy in its specifically american form was created to allow men and women to see their own higher principle within themselves And we'll come back to that. What does it mean when you're choosing
1: on an individualistic
0: basis? Without that inner meaning, democracy becomes, as Plato and Aristotle pointed out 2,500 years ago, a celebration of disorder and superficiality, which I think in a way is sort of what we're descending into now a little bit. Um, All the rights guaranteed by the Constitution were based on a vision of human nature etc cetera, etc cetera. this higher reality within the self was called many things reason conscious nature's god when this idea is left out or treated as though its meaning were obvious then the ideals of independence and liberty <coughs> lose their power and truth they become mere names that mask the ever-present tendency of nations and groups and individuals to seek only their own external and short-term advantages. So this uh, is a problem that was basically articulated by Edelman, you know, maybe 10 years ago. I think now it's come to a new stage. And so with those words of framing now, I want to actually go into looking at some of the language of, first of all, the vision of America that's very familiar to us, the Declaration of Independence, and compare it with a comparable, call it a mission statement of the Jewish people, and I want to unpack that a little bit. So if you look at uh, your text, and here's what I'm gonna ask you to do before you get into the text. Whatever you think, and this is just reflecting you, whatever you think you know and is so familiar, please, Suspend that judgment and come to this with fresh eyes. We're in a new reality. So come to it with fresh eyes. For those of you, when we get to the Jewish text, there may be people here, I, I pick fundamental texts that, that in certain cases will be very familiar. With. Look at those with fresh eyes. For others who may not have seen those texts, some of those texts, they may be new. Don't be weirded out because they're a weird ancient texts. Look at those with an open heart. Okay, so now let's go. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God want from you? Only that you be in awe of the Lord your God, to walk in all his paths, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Well, if you look at these two and just sort of use them as representative. Nothing here is exhaustive. There are a lot of examples of other counter examples and other things, but these are bread and butter texts. You see some very obvious things. And so this journey is to point out the obvious in a new situation. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Well, uh, we're living in a time now when it's not clear that any truths are self evident seriously. It's not clear at all that the category truth itself is a self evident assumption. It really isn't. The struggle that we're having now, uh, it's a cultural struggle, it's a very deep struggle, it goes back many years, is whether there is a truth or there isn't a truth. And there's a struggle of, okay, now what is the truth? and what's self-evident to you is not self-evident to me, both as an individual and between cultures. So what is truth? Is there a truth? What is it? Uh, That becomes a question now. Um, But here are some uh, truths that are being affirmed now, that all men are created equal. Okay, what's the basis of that? Oh, they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. So what you have here is, the introduction of some notion of a creator. Of course, we know where that comes from and we're going to look at our version of that. And per potentially, and in the way I grew up, the Jewish version and the American version drive just like that, they went together. They went together. If you're an Eagle Scout, like I was, you come from a, a very Jewish home, it all goes together, it all fits. Uh, then among these are life, these these rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, so I just, we're going to come back to all those things, but in a minute, I, I just want to kind of, the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness is, is the statement that basically is defining the ultimate meaning and purpose. And so one of the things you have to think about is what is happiness? What does it mean? What does it mean in the state? Let's go to Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy starts with a question. It doesn't have anything that's self-evident. It starts with a question. And the question immediately invokes something that's transcendent, the Lord. So there's a transcendent purpose that's just put right out there. Uh, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God want from you? Of course, anytime we use the word Israel, uh, what we have here is uh, basically a play on individual identity and collective identity. That, that right up front, the idea of the individual is the, the individual and the collective self are kind of put together, so there's a built-in tension in that. The first declaration of independence statement is clearly based on radical individualism. And we'll have to explore later what's the difference between individuality and the dignity of the individual and the work of an individual versus individualism. Individualism which basically says the bottom line is the individual. The individual determines the meaning of this ultimate pursuit of happiness. What is happiness? It's an individual category. It doesn't have any moral content to it at all. Happiness is not a moral category. It's basically saying every human being is entitled to the right to determine for themselves if and what the purpose of life is about. So there's no sense of any kind of shared overarching purpose one way or another. If there is, it's very thin. And then here you go into the the Deuteronomy one, it's all about purpose not happiness it's about seeking purpose through these these paths which include these very loaded words of love and serving God with all your heart and all your soul all your mind so there's a disconnect here they're not contradictory they're not contradictory they could be contradictory they could go they could go together very nicely uh, The first one is about rights, the second one is about obligations. But the question is, what's the ground of the obligation? The ground of the obligation is that there's something in life that's transcendent that has purpose, and so the, the Jewish ethos is basically about purpose. It's not about happiness. Happiness and purpose are not the same kind of categories. It's like mixing apples and oranges. One is a personal preference one that you could fill in and make it about purpose. In fact, there's a lot of talk now in conferences and books and there's even a science of happiness now uh, that uh, some of you may have encountered. Uh, I encountered it in the airport. I picked this, I never buy Time magazine anymore. I'll read this to you if you can't see it. I don't read Time magazine, but this is a special edition of Time and it's got the science of emotions love, laughter, fear, and grief, and it's got a whole section here on the science of happiness, and what you see here is that happiness is science, is basically, it's, it's a category that is, is understood primarily as what does an individual, how does an individual benefit, how does an individual feel, there's no moral content to it, and there's no sense of overarching transcendence, but there is a sense of its utility. There's a benefit to making sure people are happy. Happiness is a cornerstone of productivity. Countless studies have shown that those with a skip in their step typically have better jobs, are evaluated more positively by their bosses, and make more money. They're also more charitable and more satisfied with marriages. They have stronger immune systems. So happiness here is basically, it's a category of the individual. It's understood in utilitarian terms. When it's put in terms of purpose terms, it's sort of left hanging. So um, a very distinguished professor of psychology defines it as like this. Do something that serves a larger purpose, whether it's a job you find meaningful or volunteer work in the community, Doing good can make you feel good. Okay? So there are attempts to, to basically come around and, and, and make the claim based on kind of utilitarian ethics that it's good for you to actually care about something that's outside of yourself. What that is, the scope of that. So I want I, I wanted to summarize what I've been saying now and say there's a distinction between not only obligations and rights, but obligations and responsibilities imply to something. The action is service to, to serve. Service to something and that is a purpose statement and the service is to something transcendent, something very large. It's not just any old thing that you have to choose today or tomorrow. And so, the happiness is not purpose. Purpose is not any old purpose. Purpose in a Jewish deep sense is purpose to something transcendent vast. I'm avoiding right now, for now, uh, trying to pin it down to a word like God or any version of a word like God. Because, but it is pointing to Something that is transcendent. The reason I'm doing that is because the word God itself has become laden mm-hmm. and cliché, laden. So we don't have time here. What, what this part of of my talk is suggesting is that if you want to understand in a deep sense what does it mean to serve something larger than yourself, that something needs to be on some level where then you struggle with theology, Are you just, and struggling with theology means struggling with agnosticism, struggling with atheism. What does it mean to live in a universe where the whole universe basically doesn't have meaning? Yes, no. Is that meaning something that's outside of what human beings create and make? Yes, no. That's the level of the discussion that has to take place. if basically, we say that a Jewish and American ethos basically in some way is connected to a large vision of what it means to be human. Now, Needleman and a lot of people will tell you, and they're right, that the founders of this country did have that vision, that's what he said. And there are are countless books written on John Meacham, the return that we see now in American culture to reading about the founding fathers and what were the intellectual forces that basically informed their thinking and founding this democracy that we love, love America. And so that is the kind of discussion that has to take place if we're talking about what does it mean to be an American and to pursue a larger sense of shared collective purpose as opposed to just limiting it to the individualism and then everyone else determines what happiness is about. Okay. So I want to just stop there, slow down. How did this this happen? That is, what are what are the forces basically in our culture that have led to a place where there really are is, is no shared sense of this sort of overarching, transcendent sense of the vision and meaning of America. So that everyone is basically fighting over their little piece of America, or their little piece of themselves, are moving into you know, a sense that it's all about a Hobbesian struggle of self-interest. every Everyone against everybody else. How did that happen? Well. And here I'm, I'm going to, uh, we're going to skip down to Robert Bella here. It's, it's, it's text for the bottom. Uh, Robert Bella, many of you know, is probably the classic definitive, or the earliest articulator of the challenge of individualism in America. His book, Habits of the Heart, from which this is taken is a classic. It refers actually to an earlier book by de Tocqueville, democracy in America the fulfilled 18th century French political theorist visited America tried to understand America as the great hope of enlightenment the to the world I mean he's a Frenchman so he's very concerned to learn from the Americans about what is the meaning of the French Revolution and how can we how can we bring democracy to Europe so he made this study the term uh, habits of the heart refers to de to Tocqueville's coinage, when he basically said America has got a real problem, which is it's based on the pursuit not of happiness but of money. It's, the, it's, it's a struggle for basically economic competition. It's, it's material, the great dream, even now. What is the dream of America? Right? To go up the, so, the social. So he noted that back in the 18th century, and he said, well, what is it that actually is shared? What what, what brings people out of their individualism into some sense that we actually are one people? And he said, well, basically, what I noticed is that in local communities, we've got these structures called churches, The word community center didn't use, but some equivalent of it. Town halls. Yeah, town halls. Families. But these are great cultivators of habits of the heart. In other words, ethos. Um, Things that shape your character. It's about character and and habit. And we learn these not on the macro level, but on a micro level. that's the support for the American dream. It's a series of local communities. Later sociologists pick up on that development that's called mediating structures. It's an abstraction for the same thing. So the America that I grew up in and probably most of the people in this room, if not all the people in this room grew up with, was an America that had fairly robust, basically, mediating structures, church, schools, neighborhoods, communities, things that are very familiar to us. Uh, as immigrants, I'm first generation, grew up, everyone around me was, if not related, was related. You know, uh, you know the neighborhood was strong. This is familiar to you. And that truly was the case. Uh, and that basically supported the diversity that basically, you know, makes up, you know, the pluribus unum, that's the pluribus. You know, but there, an unum, a unity, emerged because there was this sense that basically we had built into us, a, a basically a sense of what was human and what was human overlapped. I know that when I grew up, uh, there were words that basically Jews could just say without... Telling you what the ethos was, you know, that's posnish, Okay, that's not that's not an articulated ethical principle like Kant. You know, here's the principle by which you should behave. You know, if you're in this community, you know, if you're in this family, you don't do that. You don't. There's just you just don't do that. Uh, you know, uh, classically, not being famous statement. Atayyeholi, open up elders, the Torah. You could be an S.O.B. with the permission of the Torah. Where does that come from? It's an earlier iteration of the same thing. When you grow up in a in a community where there's a strong ethos of what's right and what's wrong and how to behave on a nuanced level, not on an abstract principle level, but on a nuanced level, you need that kind of. Of organic nuance to be built into the culture for anything larger to happen. So what about in the absence of that? So Robert Bellow in this quote basically is going to, I'm not going to read it, but basically what he's going to say is: again, language is going to be very familiar to you. He was going to be, he's going to say that our moral language has dissolved. We don't have shared language anymore. We have no longer a shared sense of what's right and wrong. Basically, ethics has become preferences and priorities. Uh, He uses language here that's very strong. With no wider framework of purpose or belief. There's no wider sense of what this all adds up to, of purpose. If your preferences change, so does the nature of the good. Even if the deepest ethical virtues are justified as matters of personal preference, the ultimate ethical rule is simply that individuals should be able to pursue what they find rewarding. And then he sums up by saying, this kind of justification of life rests on a fragile foundation. And I want to come back to that foundation. What is our society, what are we standing on it lacks a language to explain what seem to be real commitments that define life. And to that extent, the commitments themselves are precarious. Okay, so we need to have a large sense of purpose in order to basically make sense of the behaviors and the way we act and, and the way we see each other. And again, at the heart of this is going to be, what does it mean to be a human being? What, what, what's the conception? As a result of this lack of moral language, it's thick and rich and nuanced. Basically, a vacuum has been filled by very powerful forces in our society that have existed from time immemorial, but actually today, take on, increasingly in modernity for sure, but today even more than modernity as in 50 years ago uh, or even 10 years ago, uh, has had an incredible effect, has infused the way we understand each other. Those forces are economics, and I mean, what I mean by economics, I mean the role that economic discourse, the language of economics, has infused the way we understand our own morality. So it's not just that people always struggle to make a living, Parnassa. you gotta make a living, you gotta make a living, we all know that. The extent is, the question is, to what extent does the language of Parnassa at the highest level, in other words, the language that academic, economists who have a tremendous influence on the intellectual life of the city, of the, of the city-state, classically, but now the state, they're the people who are the treasurers, they're the people, they have redefined economics, and there's a quote here by Sandel, I'm just gonna uh, paraphrase it to you, because at the time, Michael Sandel is a philosopher, political philosopher, but he writes on all sorts of, of issues, and basically what he points out in the book what money can't buy is that economics, meaning academic, the, the, the books of the economics, that people read when they go to the prestigious schools that we push our kids into. That, that discourse shifted very self-consciously in the latter part of the 70s. Before then, economics was about what? What's economics about? Economics, it's about money, it's about finance, it's about banking, it's about economics. After the 1970s, University of Chicago, some very prestigious economists basically said no. E- e- economics is a science of human behavior. All human behavior actually could be understood in scientific terms. Now, no one's paying attention to this who's paying attention to me, you know? But the truth is that that idea became very, very dominant and has infused our society in a way that you don't have to read Freud to be a Freudian if you live in the 20th century or the 21st century, it's not that safe. It's just part of the ethos. So part of the ethos now, 20 years later or more of that is that we understand everything in terms of the science of human behavior is Cost-benefit analysis. Bottom line. Leverage. I, I read um, proposals for Jewish educational projects for some foundations. I can't believe, although unfortunately I can't. It. It's very upsetting. The language that's used in these educational proposals. Serious educators. People really want to make a difference. They really want to spread. They want. They want to do good. Then you read these proposals. It's all full of business speak. There's no human in it. It's leveraging this, you know, out of a wrestler, okay? You know what leveraging is? Okay? Leveraging is force. Leveraging is figuring out how to manipulate or force someone to do your will, okay? It's what we teach at the Harvard School of Business. It's what the Kennedy School teaches when they're teaching strategy. So this business what does it mean? Basically, they've got cost-benefit analysis, strategize about leveraging. It's a language of transactional language that affects the way we understand ourselves and everything. And two examples, of, uh, more examples of how that plays out um, follow. So if you look on uh, source six, okay? So, this is another force that's coming together. This is this is another, it's another force. It's not, it's not, it's another version. It's another version of uh, transactional language. It's not cost benefits. See everyone in terms of their utility to you. Um, it's technology, the language of technology. That's the other force. I am not against technology, I just want to say. Uh, because my kids think I'm against technology because I'm always ranting and raving about social media. Uh, it's obvious, my, I wouldn't be here before you if it wasn't for technology. My life has been saved by medical technology on more than one occasion. Uh, I value social media increasingly. So this isn't about the wise, prudent use of what technology can Okay? It's not that. But it is a critique of the effect of technology and technological language and media when it undermines our sense of human dignity and human worth. Then it becomes a problem to you. And it does it when you don't have a corrective language where people can say, well, wait a minute. Do I really want to be doing this, what does this do to who I am as a person, when you don't have that kind of language or discussion. And so let's read together um, six. This is a, comes from a, Howard Gardner is an extraordinary public intellectual uh, and professor of education. Katie Davis is a younger, uh, Howard is exactly my age. Uh, Katie is in her thirties. And they had Howard's granddaughter or grandson actually work with them on the book because they were aware that when you're writing about technology, you know what generation you are actually makes a difference. And Howard just didn't want to be the caveman critic. He really wanted this to be an honest thing. So, so this, so that's the result is this book. So here he's talking about youth identity. Just how are youth's identities shaped and expressed in the age of the app? We have found that as suggested by the app icon itself, the identities of young people are increasingly packaged. This packaging has the consequence of minimizing a focus on the inner life, on personal conflicts and struggles, on quiet (laughs) reflection. For the affluent youth, their focus largely rests on presenting a polished, Packaged self so that will meet the approval of college admissions officers and prospective employers. They appear to regard themselves increasingly as objects that have
1: quantifiable
0: values to others, an SAT score, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. One religious religious leader echoed the seminar and the other participants in the focus group, and he said that for many people, who I am means, what am I going to produce? Now, I spent my life, or at least my adult life, even when I wasn't an adult, but thought I was an adult, in working with young people as an educator, as a learner, as a teacher. And you have no idea how pernicious this is. Um, The competition, uh, Dr. Schwartz talked about uh, meritocracy, you know, uh, as basically competition. It's, this really is, you know, just ask yourselves, are your day schools Jewish schools or are they prep schools? And it's not a trivial question. A prep school is designed to get you not into a good humanities school. A prep school is designed to get you into a prestigious school. It may happen to have a good humanities program. It may happen to be a, a, an incredible place to grow. I have no critique of it. My kids went to those schools. <clears throat> they have mixed blessings. But is the purpose of a Jewish education for you to climb up the ladder economically and in terms of your social status, is that really the purpose? Is that really what we want? Is that all we want? Is that the ultimate? Is that our dream? Is that the American dream? or something else that has to do with what does it mean to actually understand what it means to be a Jew, including your own humanity as a person, your own way of understanding yourself, seeing yourself, and of course, how you see yourself is how you see others. There's no doubt about it. Okay, that's a question. I don't have the answer to that. To me, the answer is yes, meaning it's both of the above depending on who you are and what you're doing. But culturally speaking, what's become increasingly the case is that the very language we speak is economic cost-benefit language in all sorts of metaphors that just we use them all the time. I use them all the time. Or digital technology that's basically all about this mediated relationships that end up uh, of uh, making people commodities. And then the last one here, Deborah Spar, Wonder Woman, Sex, Power, and the Quest for Perfection. This is a book written by, she's the president of uh, uh, of Barnard, I, I believe, many of you may know her. She was. Uh, she was, she's no longer. That's what happens to presidents of universities. <laughs> uh, because you know why? It used to be, I, I went to a little small school, the president had been there forever. Uh, he was an educator. Is this that other president's not? You know, the that, primary role, to raise money. So that that's the issue, okay? But she she's a great thinker, and basically she's talking about the effect of this culture, in the absence of any kind of shared understanding of the overall purpose of our rights, which we all cherish. The effect on women, because she herself struggled. She was a I think the first um, Harvard Business School professor female to get tenure, and she suffered because of the, the sexism at Harvard Business School. And so when she became president of, of Harvard, she wrote this book, and basically, uh, she's talking about the, the, the hookup culture. The hookup culture is basically also a result of what does it mean when you basically see human beings in the context of this is about success, competition, how do you present, what you need to do to get ahead, all that. Uh, and so she's interviewing some of her, her, her students. Women are as free as men to have sex simply for pleasure. This is one of the great legacies of the 60s. Ironically, though, part of what drives the hookup culture is a desire for women to have it all. A desire for a sex city lifestyle full of closed jobs, etc. So the issue here is not sex is evil or bad. The issue here is that you're part of a culture that's a get-ahead competitive rat race culture. That's the issue. And in that culture, guess what? It just so happens that it's not efficient cost-benefit analysis. It's not efficient to have actual intimate relationships. Relationships that require commitment actually are are not efficient. I find that just an amazing way to understand this, but it's true. It's true, that's really what this is about. It's not, it's not an affirmation of freedom. It's an affirmation of what happens when, ultimately the bottom line is, how do you basically balance all these insane forces on your life and just understand them as cost-benefit analysis? And so the result is, she's my friend Celia sipping her tea is quiet when I ask her, whether young women enjoy hookups as much as young men do. I don't think so, she says slowly. I mean, it's fun and it's easy, but it feels kind of empty for the boys and the girls. The advent of hooking up has meant that men are now commodified and as easily and frequently as women. So basically, all of the above is, 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 is making a very simple claim that
1: there's an idea, potential, it could be highly articulated.
0: Of a shared overarching purpose of American life, but that's got to come from ground up, from individuals and communities. Happiness just leaves it up to the individual. There's a moral language that then languishes, that doesn't take place, that doesn't develop, because it depends on churches, schools, communities, and their educators to bring that language to the fore. It also depends on, I'll I'll add, humanity schools, which used to do, in other words, universities used to do that work. They did used to do that work. That's declined. That vacuum has now been filled by the discourse of business and economics and technology. And those languages are not designed the purposes of those languages is not designed, actually, to articulate what it means to be human. There's nothing wrong with efficiency or cost-benefit analysis in contexts where you have to be efficient. The problem is when it's superimposed on larger questions, such as, what does it mean uh, to be human? And so that vacuum gets filled by this other discourse. So what about, I'm going to have to relieve fast the alternative, or meaning, what could Judaism bring to the table? And let me just stop there and say, this is not dissing America and putting Judaism on uh, You have to ask yourself whether we Jews ourselves, we Jews who claim we're committed and have created institutions, to what extent have we actually dealt with what I talked about, or have we actually supported it, enabled it? Uh, That's the question that's out there. But now, what do we actually have as a resource in our tradition from the point of view of education? And here I'm gonna go very fast. I'm basically gonna say, if we're looking at what are the building blocks of the Jewish ethos that really have to do with if we really educated people, not just to read the text that I'm quoting or other texts that can do the same work, but we actually were educating people to understand themselves. In other words, their ethos, to take in deeply, internalize what these texts are saying, how would it affect their own self-understanding and the way they relate to other people? So the first one that I, and is, is Mishma Sanhedrin. This is a famous text. I'm going to actually paraphrase it to you. You've seen it. Think about it in this context. This is a text that's very much at the heart of what does it mean to be a human being. The context of this text in Sanhedrin is basically capital cases. A human life is about to be taken away. This is the speech that's to be given by the judge to a witness who's got the power to take someone's life. It's a capital case. This is the awareness that the witness is supposed to have. When you look at a human being, when you look at a human being, The dignity of what it means to be a person. There are three dimensions to what you have to think about. And just think about how far this goes from just respect, manners, being nice on the surface. Think of what it means in a deep internal sense. The first is basically everyone is is an entire world, meaning everyone has infinite worth. Yes, Greenberg. This is the text that he really has brought to my generation, really make us aware of it. And it really goes in deeply. I'm sure there are people in this room who have the privilege of studying this text with, yes, I want to know why this text isn't the foundation of day school education, college education for Jews. Dignity is not a one-dimensional external thing. It's internal in a deep sense. Every human being has infinite work, infinite work. We are full worlds. We are complete worlds. Just in the back of your mind, compare this to understanding human beings in utilitarian terms, use terms. You are what you make. You are what you produce. You are how beautiful you are. No, I am a world unto myself. You cannot measure quantitatively. Do not measure anything quantitatively that has to do with the self. You have infinite worth. This is all our conception of creation. This is the creator that's in the declaration of independence. This is the subtext to that. Secondly, we're equal. So equality, the foundation of the society, is actually grounded on a deeper notion of equality. Not rights. It's rights are based upon a deeper notion. We're equal because we all come from one source. It's a deeper notion. So there's infinite worth, there's equal worth, And then lastly, there's here's the difference between individualism and individuality. Each one of us is absolutely and totally unique. And of course what that does is, it creates a tension between equality as sameness, putting people in boxes, we're equal, therefore we all belong in the same box. No, we're equal because we have infinite worth, which can't be measured, and paradoxically, each one of us is also completely individual. We have our own integrity that's got to be respected. And so there's a a tension built into this between equality, individuality, and the ground of it is infinite worth. And all of this is, of course, a total refutation, but not in the intellectual sense, in a sense of what is rock bottom for you? Well, the rock bottom for you is a text like this is, the way I understand who I am and other people, then those utilitarian, the way we measure, the way we quantify people, oh, how good did you do? One to ten, how are you on a scale? All that becomes nonsense It gets thrown out. The next set of texts after that is basically a commentary on that. It's a continuation on creation we not only are to be understood in these deep sense of infinite equal metaphysically founded worth individuality but guess what we are loved. there's the introduction of an emotion. That, that's, that's added to this, from Pirkei Avot. Pirkei Avot needed to add this other dimension because if our worth is abstract and understood only in terms of principles that we don't understand really what an ethos is. An ethos told you habits of the heart. We have our own version of that. In the 11th century, Hovot halvavot obligations of the heart. And so our ethos has built into this holistic view that an ethos is the combination of the way the mind articulates language, how the mind understands language emotionally, and how emotion is what actually motivates action, as the word itself implies, emote. That's what, and of course neuroscience now is doing amazing things, in showing the holism of how the mind works in terms of intellect, cognitive, so-called affective. And the same guy, Howard Gardner is the guy, some of you may know, is the one who sort of shot out of the water one of the icons of the Jewish community, which is, oh, our kids are so smart, they've got high IQs. Oh, isn't that great? To multiple intelligences. In other words, the understanding of the self that basically the self contains a multiplicity. I forget how many he's up to, but he added, interestingly and importantly, not only interpersonal intelligence and not only kinetic body intelligence and spatial intelligence and a whole lot of other intelligences, all of which are in the consciousness of the brain, he added spiritual intelligence recently. And that's important because we're gonna to come to that uh, maybe soon if I run out of time, but that's where I want to I want to take us. So this basically this text is saying yeah, and when you think about who you are on the basis of this construct called creation, it's not creator great. It's it's a, it's it's an intellectual construct that also has a narrative part to it, that also has into it a way to translate it into a full a full ethos. It's love. So experience this sense of who you are as love. Why? Because love is unconditional. I am unconditionally loved. I'm not just have intrinsic worth. I am unconditionally loved. The mission is very sophisticated. It says there are two levels to it. There's the fact, fake fact, Jewish fact, Human beings are constituted by love, the world is constituted by love, that's what creation means. And there's my subjective experience of love, and they may not be the same. So if you look at that text, it says, Beloved is a person, because we are created in the image of God. And then it says, we're given an additional capacity for love, because it is made known to us that we are beloved. And and what that's suggesting to us is that actually it's a moral struggle to claim, to feel your own belovedness. You have to work at it. And that text is gonna go through. It's got three levels We're am gonna go through. The first one is it's basically in the image of God. It's quoting Noah. It's not quoting the, the, the original Adam uh, story. It's not the abstraction. It's actually, in the context of Noah, the reason for that is because the difference between Adam and Noah is that in the context of Noah, it's communicated by God. It's speech. It's intimate speech. In the first case, Adam isn't created yet. Then there are two other levels here that have to do with discovering that your love mediated not through communication of God directly, but through the Jewish people. We're children of God. That's Habibin Yisrael. So we've got our own individuality, a place to discover that, and we also have a community that can also be a source of mediation for that. All of this, of course, has to do with how do you get outside of yourself and in touch with something that's not only larger than you, but transcendent or much larger than you. Go uh, okay. ahead. How much time do I have? How much? Ten more minutes, okay. Ten minutes on the clock. So all of that is all of that is how what we just did just now is a a Rashi, a commentary on Declaration of Independence Creator. That's the way I'm understanding it now after the fact. That uh, we're endowed by our creator. Well, it's up to individual communities to interpret in a thicker, deeper, more nuanced way. And so I bring these texts as examples and representatives of, to understand and appreciate the declaration of independence and what is the ground of individual rights endowed by our creator is to have a richer, thicker, deeper understanding of creation and creator applied to ourselves and That's what these texts are. So if you understand yourself and others in terms of these texts, it's impossible to see yourself as an object. It's impossible to objectify other people in any way other than to know that in some way you're reducing their humanity, even if there are situations where you're doing that. I'm now going to shift and say that the first category of our ethos, creation, another big category, of course, is covenant. And covenant in the Torah, as you know, comes out of creation. It's a way that we move from the universal into the particular, into the Jewish identity. And the ground of the covenant is Abraham. We're going to use Abraham as an example. And if you uh, look at Isaiah 51, listen to me, those who pursue justice. Oh, justice. You who seek the Lord. Same language as we had actually in that other text at the beginning. There's something about pursuing something other than happiness. It's pursuit, it's justice, it's seeking something transcendent. It's seeking it. You don't have it, you're seeking it. You who seek the Lord. Well, how do we do this? Well, let's go back to basics, let's go back to foundations, let's go back to roots, Isaiah's telling us. And the metaphor that he has for foundations here is quarry and rock, sewer, rock. Look to the rock, the sewer, from which you were hewn to the quarry you were dug from. In other words, go deep. Go into your moral, spiritual DNA. What is that? Look back to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who brought you forth. Abraham and Sarah. For he was only one when I called him, but I blessed him many. So Abraham becomes the model. Who is Abraham in this tradition? In Isaiah, not this verse, but another verse, and then in the tradition picked up by every Jewish philosopher, especially Maimonides, he's the lover. So the thread of love from creation to love as being the foundation of covenant is Abraham. Abraham is the quarry and the rock, Abraham and Sarah, And they are the lovers. Um, I'm going to now just take you through heads of of, uh, categories here. texts that you'll look at at the road, and I'll point out some things. All of this is now, these are foundations. How does that become concretized in our daily life? And I've picked some texts that really kind of show key places, called the milestones. Um, If I were developing a curriculum, and and when I was doing this I would say to God, each one of these texts, or each two of these texts, could be a whole lecture. You could put together a whole course, actually, based on any one of these texts, but certainly this body of text. So I'm pointing to them, and telling you their main points, and then we'll sew it up at the end, and I'm inviting you to study them on your own. The guy basically here as well is is picking up and interpreting that Isaiah quote. And it's basically saying, when you look to Abraham, look at three things. Look at his teaching. Look at the way he walks, which is his his quest. And look at his midog, his character traits. In other words, that which he's internalized as part of his character. And then Maimonides in 13 is going to give us a whole narrative of Abraham that's based on his understanding of the ethos of Judaism and Abraham is lover. And what you have is a picture of Abraham who asks questions. He raises questions. they existential questions. He's not getting this from a tradition. He's got no tradition. He raises these questions. He, Quest in his life till age 40, only then does he have a relationship with God. And the object of his questions, the path that it puts him on, is twofold. It's Derek HaAmet, the path of truth, and derech Sedek, the path of justice. Justice and truth are commingled in this system. And of course we see those in so many of the the passages, including one we read and will read. Justice and truth, they're organizing principles. They're not add-ons, they're organizing principles. Um, If you want to begin to define what the transcendent, the content of the transcendent purpose is, it's justice and truth. Don't play with truth, don't play with justice. And by the way, the word wrote death, Pursuit. In Hebrew, it's used, at least in our tradition, biblically or in terms of halakha, there are three things that you should pursue. Emmet, truth, tzedek, justice, what else? Shalom. Shalom, peace. What What are you not supposed to pursue and we and that language is used in a negative sense? Ta'avah, hedonism, mamon, which is money, you should not pursue money. Make a living, great. Because sometimes, hate, don't pursue money. And someone said it over here, kavod. Kavod as honor, as prestige. And if you think about the text we've already looked at, you can see why those pursuits would be a problem. And built into the Hebrew word pursuit, and just let it resonate a little bit with the Declaration of Independence, seems to be the notion, if you put these objects to them, that what you want to pursue are values that are not achievable. They're, they're infinite aspirations. And if, if you wanna be on the path of truth, you're always gonna be on the path. Don't feel that you've ever arrived. If you feel you've arrived, Pursuit is an object of an object that cannot be objectified. It's it's like the Mishnah. It's got infinite worth. You cannot quantify it. You've got to live with the aspiration of truth, justice, and peace are ongoing aspirations, and that's why you've got to throw all your energy into them. The other ones are not things you should not do. They're things you should not pursue because they're finite. And this is one of the basic issues in the Jewish ethos. Maimonides articulates in his parish to the Mishnah, know the difference between an end, a purpose, and an ultimate end, an ultimate purpose. And know the difference between means and ends. Do not confuse means and ends. root, and he uses the term root, of idolatry to Maimonides, it's not that people ever believed that these stupid little statues that they put together were divine gods. No one believed that. It's that they confused the means of worship with the end of worship. They settled for something finite as being ultimate. That's the root of idolatry. That's the same issue here. So here, basically, um, I'm now flipping pages, and I'm, looking, I'm just pointing to the, the main heads here. Root qualities of human behavior. The Rambam calls human character deoed. The word tailed whenever you see this book translator, this collection, it's always mistranslated. Because the one word, dealt has a different meaning for Maimonides than the way we usually Called ethics and virtues. Deo is consciousness; it's moral consciousness. So, character, taking something in deeply, so that you do it. I'm back to ethos. You take it in so deeply that it's part of your very identity. That's what Abraham is supposed to model for us. It's it's a kind of consciousness that you have. It's as I referred to before the integration of your mind your heart and, and the way you dance, the way you act. And so there are two, there are two qualities that, to Maimonides whose basic model is balance and integration and being a balanced, integrated person. There are two to which you basically need to go off of a middle path of balance. One is humility. You should be humility and pride. There are some dispositions in which regard to in regard to which is forbidden to merely walk the middle path. They must be shunned to the extreme, such as pride. Anyone who allows his heart to swell with arrogance has denied an essential principle. Back to essentials, ikar. Under a ban, the he who is proud. This is very extreme language, particularly in a teaching which is all about balance and so-called moderation. Anger too is an exceedingly bad disposition, and one should avoid it to the extreme. The sages said, one who is angry, it is as if he has worshipped idols. Angry people, their lives are not life. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, you want to interpret that? What is life at its deepest level? What's the quality of life? Life and anger do not go together. If you flip through these, you'll see there are big areas where the, the, the Abrahamic uh, model, who he is, gets translated into concrete terms. Sadaka, which we all, Jews know, we give more than anyone else. We do this, that, and the other. Abraham is the model of Sadaka, in Hilkot. It's Abraham's the model, so the idea is Sadaka is a simon. Of, of of who you are, it's just, it, it's it, it's it's the posnish a Jew is to a body. what is Siddhartha? It's not giving money. That's an expression of something deeper. It's an expression of sedek, and sedek to the rambam is not just justice abstract. It's not justice as fairness. Sedek to the rambam is any. Moral quality you have that comes out of your soul. It's when you have, when you have internalized these moral qualities, which he and Rambam and other a whole lot of other sages, our whole tradition outlines, so-called middot qualities, character traits. When you've internalized those and your action is coming from that deep place, that's what seket is. That's what it means. And so ilchot where we're dealing with how, in fact, in a concrete level, should we give practically, which is very important. What's essential is, to the Rambam, that it's an expression of something much deeper in the ethos. And as you go through this, and again, many of you have studied these texts before, notice how much attention is put to, not the what you give, but the how you give. And notice, When he's talking about the how you give, what he's talking about is very subtle stuff. He's talking about are you looking at the person or do you turn away? He's talking about your body language. He's talking about your voice tones. He's talking about what happens when you don't have to give. So all those levels that have to do with the nuance of relating to another person, not as an object, even if you're being generous but relating to them as a full human being. And of course, what he emphasizes there is, in Sadaka, which is connected to it, is, and this word repeats itself over and over again, is Okay? It's compassion, not abstract. It's abstraction is, did you stop? Did you look the person in the eye? Did you commiserate with them? Did you do what you would do in your family, or shiva? Did you do that with a stranger? How do you talk, what was your voice talking about? That's what comes through there. Speech, per se, becomes a central part of the Jewish ethos. I said before that Jews and words, speech is the way we kind of transmit, but speech is also the way that you relate to vulnerable people, the way you relate to yourself. And therefore, uh, there's another text in here which is just about not evil speech, Evil speech is what? Evil. We all know that. What about which is just basically hurtful speech? It's that nuance when you hurt people. Well, that verbal abuse is much worse than monetary damage. He goes on, restoration is possible in the latter. No restoration is possible in the farmer. The latter concerns one's money. The farmer is very personal. The verse, you shall be in awe of the Lord your God, is appended to the commandment against verbal injury because it is a matter of the heart. So basically what's being said there is that when you've got a large sense of your place in the world, a sense of the transcendence, a sense of awe, all is a way of, of, of apprehending reality. Awe is a way of basically understanding your place in the world. When you've got that sense of awe, you've internalized it. <laughs> And then you're relating to another person, you're relating on the basis of something that's very different uh, than uh, utility. So I have to end, uh, so I wanna come full circle. You'll you'll see as you go through these, uh, especially the the ethos of leadership, who do you trust, what is authority, and you'll see here that uh, in Laws of Sanhedrin, the traits of a leader and who you trust are all traits that come right out of the ethos wisdom, humility of God, sinat mamon is the term, Sinat and that love of truth, and a good name, which basically means the totality of yourself. So who do we trust? It's not what heck share do you have, it's what is the kind of person who embodies the Jewish ethos? What is the What's the makeup of that person? What's the sum total of their identity? Their name? Do they have these traits? The traits I mentioned? And that to me uh, is very relevant to uh, what we're dealing with today. So to end, go full circle, basically what I'm suggesting here is that we bring together the declaration of independence, those words and everything behind them, and the text that we looked at in other texts is again just representative and we didn't even get to the ones that were on the page. And we read them, we read them together. And we read them together in line of what to me is actually the deepest notion of all this that underlines every Jewish text we read. And that's the sense that actually we are connected to a being to which we have an intimate relationship. Do so we have access? Do we believe that or not? Do we have an experience of that? Do we educate our kids to have access to that kind of experience? In different ways, a multiplicity of ways, but do we take them to that level within their own souls? That to me is the challenge. And so here I'm going to end just by reading, and you just read and do your own thinking about whatever's going on in your mind now, um, these last few quotes, under humanizing Jewish and there were the details. Unto you, human beings, I call in my voice, my voice, to the human family. Leonard Cohn weighs in. This was the last interview we gave in New Yorker magazine. Some of you may have read it. I know there's a spiritual aspect to everybody's life, whether they want to cop to it or not. It's there, you can feel it, people. There's some recognition that there's a reality that they cannot penetrate, and insist on a response. What I mean to say is that you hear the bothole, the divine voice, you hear this other deep reality singing to you all the time and much of the time. You can't decipher it. It's very compassionate at this stage. More than at any time in my life, that's a tremendous blessing, really. That's the place we need to get to. And then, if we can get to that place, listen to Micah and the Declaration of Independence in dialogue with each other. He has told you, O people, what is good and what the Lord asks of you, only to do justice and love, loving kindness, and walk with God with humility. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you.